Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening where we continue our reflections into this very rich letter, this very rich epistle from Paul to the Church of Corinth. We are in chapter 5, but before we get into chapter 5, I did want to speak to the inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. I know I have used these words and or phrases in passing in the past, and and I may have even described them, uh, but it has been quite some time, and given the subject matter that we are going to get into over the next week or so, subject matter that is specific to sexual immorality, I thought it would be good to get into the importance of the Word of God inspired, (laughs) okay, and the inerrant nature of sacred Scripture, and I will be primarily drawing from the Ignatius Catholic Study Bible and its intro to Uh, underscore the key points here. Now, the Catholic Church certainly makes mighty claims for the Bible, and our acceptance of those claims is essential if we are to read the Scriptures and apply them to our lives as the Church intends. So, as I was just commenting, words such as inspired and inerrant really need to be understood if we are going to properly understand sacred scripture and interpret it properly. We have to understand what the church means by these terms, and we have to make that understanding our own. I mean, after all, if you think about it, what we believe about the Bible will inevitably influence the way we read the Bible and ultimately how the Bible impacts our life, right? (laughs) You know, we often use the phrase, I got out of sacred scripture, I got out of my reading of this text, this or that. Well, it's good that you got something out of sacred scripture, but it's all the more important and all the more good if you do it within the context of understanding these all-important words. So these principles that we speak of really hold true no matter what we read. A news report, a, a search warrant, an advertisement, a paycheck and even most certainly a doctor's prescription. I mean, how or whether we read these things depends largely upon our what? But preconceived notions about the reliability and authority of their sources, huh? And the potential, of course, that they have for affecting our lives. In some cases, we could say, to misunderstand a document's authority can lead to dire consequences. In others, it can keep us from enjoying rewards that are rightfully ours. In the case of the Bible, my friends, both the rewards and the consequences take on ultimate value, right? Supreme value because we're talking about the Word of God. So what does the church mean then when she affirms the words of St. Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that all Scripture is inspired by God? Theotnoustos, huh? Inspired by God. Since the term inspired in this passage could be translated as God breathed, huh? God breathed, 
it follows that God breathed forth his word in the scriptures as, as you and I breathe forth air when we speak. This means that God is the primary author of the Bible. He certainly employed human authors in this task as well, but he did not. And let me underscore, he did not merely assist them while they wrote or subsequently approve what they had written. God, the Holy Spirit, is the principal author of sacred scripture, while the human writers are what we call instrumental authors. So the Holy Spirit is the principal author, and the human writers are what we call instrumental authors. Now, these human authors freely wrote everything and only those things that God wanted, huh? The Word of God in the very <laughs> words of God. Now, this miracle of due authorship extends to all of sacred Scripture and to every one of its parts, so that whatever the human authors affirm, God likewise affirms through their words. Now, the principle of biblical inerrancy follows logically, we could say, from this principle of divine authorship. After all, God cannot lie, right? He is absolute truth. He is the essence of truth. I am who I am. He cannot lie. And if he cannot lie, then he cannot make mistakes. Since the Bible is divinely inspired, it must be without error in everything that is divine and human authors affirm to be true. Now, of course, the mantle of inerrancy likewise covers faith and morals, but it extends even farther to ensure that all the facts and events of salvation history, as we have been talking about so much, are accurately presented for us in the sacred text. Brothers and sisters, inerrancy is our guarantee that the words and deeds of God found in the Bible are unified and true, declaring with one voice, we could say, the wonders of His saving love. Now, the guarantee of inerrancy does not mean, however, that the Bible is an all-purpose encyclopedia of information covering every field of study. I know I've touched upon this before. There's a tendency to go to sacred scripture and treat it like this kind of encyclopedia, but that is not the case. So the Bible is not, for example, a textbook in the empirical sciences, and it should never be treated as one. When biblical authors relate facts of the natural order, we can be sure they are speaking in a purely descriptive way, according to the way things appear to their senses. Once again, this brings us back to the literal sense, does it not? We have to appreciate the historical context from which these human authors write, and at the same time, in that literal sense, ask ourselves the question, in what they are describing, how did it appear to their senses? Okay, this again is going into the literal sense. So my friends, implicit in these doctrines of inerrancy and inspiration is God's desire to make himself known to the world and to enter into a loving relationship with every man, woman, and child he has created. God gave us the scriptures not just to inform or motivate us. More than anything else, we are made to see that it is about our salvation, huh? And this higher purpose underlies every page of the Bible, 
indeed, every word of it. What are those words that come to us from St. Teresa of Avila? One can spend a lifetime meditating upon every verse in the Bible. And certainly, as we comb through Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, verse by verse, hopefully we have been made to appreciate that point. So it is about being informed on salvation history and how this motivates us surely to live in God and for other, but it just doesn't stop there. We are to understand that all-important passage that comes to us from Philippians 2.12, that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And we do this best, at least at its genesis, in reading sacred scripture, in reading the inspired word of God, that what we do might be inspired by the word of God. So inspiration and inerrancy, very important to any biblical study, no matter what book you are studying and or what chapter you may be in. Appreciate the dynamism, if you will, the forcefulness of every single verse and how it impacts not only your everyday life, but also your salvation. That again, we might work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Okay? All right, let us turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I will go ahead and read verses, I think we'll get through 8, huh? Verses 1 to 8. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and of a kind that is not found even among pagans, for a man is living with his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens all the dough? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be new dough, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen. All right, how about this opening verse? It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among pagans for a man is living with his father's wife. The Greek word here for immorality is pornea. Pornea, does that sound familiar? Well, it's where we get the word pornography. But to verse 1, we are to see that the Greek pornea refers to sexual misconduct here specified as what? but an incestuous relationship between a believer and his stepmother. Man, oh man. And St. Paul is not okay with that. So before we continue reflection there in that verse, let us first define pornography. It'd be good to do that, huh? Pornography consists in the removing real or simulated acts from the intimacy of partners in order to display them to third parties. That comes to us from the catechism 
paragraph 2534. The word pornography itself is derived from the Greek pornographian, which literally translates the writing of harlots. It is a Greek compound that conveys uh, a sense of obscene writing, or more specifically, obscene art. I find that interesting, obscene art. What we are made to see is that when our bodies are used for acts that are separated from their intended purpose to bring about babies and bonding within the sacrament of marriage, they are idle of its purpose. You see, my friends, Satan is the father of all lies. And he does not want us to see that the sexual urge can be used to foster authentic love. And so what does he do? He busies himself around the clock, hijacking from our personal and collective consciousness the understanding of the body's potential to give glory to God. That essentially, my friends, there is a profound sacramentality to our body that points to the beauty of two becoming one. And so Satan is busy parroting, if you will, the beauty of two becoming one. And St. Paul is not okay with it. (laughs) He is not okay with it, my friends. And you are arrogant. Paul is outraged here that the Corinthians allowed the incestuous man to continue in their community. He is clearly speaking to how their tolerance towards this crime was a sign of what? But their own spiritual immaturity. Be removed, he says. Here he's speaking to how the offender must be expelled from the local church and barred from participation in their fellowship and liturgy. He speaks to that here in verse 13. Very important. You know, something that grabs my attention here as we're speaking to Paul's very strong words is that our faith is not a private matter. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me say that again. Our faith is not a private matter. This is why Paul, time and time again, encourages those followers of Christ to admonish their brothers and sisters in Christ, always in gentleness, always in humility, but to admonish them. Now, I was reflecting into this earlier today, and in doing so, I thought to myself, we should hit the pause button and consider once again the importance of admonishment. You know, the word admonish comes from the Latin verb monire, which literally means to warn, advise, or to alert someone to a threat or danger. As such, its purpose is what but the good of another. It is an act of love and concern. Now, to admonish the sinner is not to belittle or humiliate him, but rather to alert him to the danger of a sinful course of action. If it is rooted in love, my friends, not pride, it is a noble act of charity. Certainly today in our culture, sadly, admonishing the sinner has fallen out of favor, and it has so for numerous reasons, to the least of which is this dictatorship of relativism that we lean into, that we live in. We no longer see truth as absolute, but whatever you make it out to be. We talked about this a great deal last week. I'm not going to get into that now. But I do want to speak to some of these scripture passages 
that are necessary to consider, to the least of which is Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18, because it's where Christ calls us to reprove, huh? Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every word may be conformed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Did you hear those verses from Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 18? Isn't Paul, in the passage that we just read, responding to our Lord's exhortation? He's more than just an echo chamber here. He is integrating our Lord's words. Jesus instructs us to speak to a sinning brother or sister and summon him to repentance. And as our Lord spoke to it, if a private rebuke does not work, others who are trustworthy should be summoned to the task, right? Especially if the matter is serious, especially if the matter is grave. How about Paul's letter to the church of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 2? Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any sin, you who are spiritual should recall him in a spirit of gentleness. There is that all-important virtue of gentleness. Look to yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So notice that we are called to recognize when a person has been overtaken by sin and to simply correct him, always in a spirit of gentleness, right? How about James chapter 5, verse 19? My brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, the text is ambiguous here as to whose soul is actually saved, but that is okay and probably good since it seems that both the corrected and the corrector are beneficiaries of a well-executed fraternal correction. It is paramount, my friends, to be present to others and not be overrun with it or overwhelmed by it. Don't feel this need to correct every sin and every sinner that you see. How about Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 14? If anyone refuses to obey what we say in this letter, note that man and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not look on him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So notice again that the medicine of rebuke, even to the point of refusing fellowship, is commanded, commanded, and again, most especially in serious matters. Note too, that even a sinner does not lose his dignity. He is still regarded to be a brother, not an enemy. And I will hearken back here to what we talked about last Thursday in our special topic of who am I to judge? You're not judging the state of a person's soul. That is between that person and God. Okay, we can never do that, nor should we. Okay, you never condemn them, but you 
alert them. Remember the verb monire, to alert, to warn. Like I said last week, when someone is about to fall off a cliff, you let them know that they're about to fall off a cliff. Don't worry about what they or someone else is going to think about you. If you see they're going to die, in this case, a spiritual death, you alert them just as you would want to be alerted. I love James 5.19 because as that text is ambiguous as to whose soul is actually saved, it is a gentle reminder that, again, both parties are always beneficiaries of admonishment. If you are one who fails in this because you are concerned about the backlash or what someone might think about you, we have to allow the virtue of fortitude to invade our soul through and through. Because if we yield to the fear of what someone is going to say about us, what are we doing but showing that we love ourselves too much and do not love God and others enough? It's a part of the gospel, my friends. So as difficult as it may be, we ought to be grateful for those who admonish us and in so doing, bringing us back to a right relationship with God. The individual that St. Paul is talking about here in this particular letter, the one who is involved in this incestuous relationship, Paul is alerting the community and at once warning them in what they are allowing. And the end hope is what? That this individual who's involved in this incestuous relationship might repent of his act and ultimately, in the mercy of God, be saved, right? My dear friends, if you were to take all of the bodies of water in the whole world, that is but a drop of God's infinite mercy. God's mercy is attracted to our brokenness. So if we repent, we will be restored and we work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Okay, let us go back to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And I'm dropping down now to chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What's going on here? Deliver this man to Satan. Here you have a call to action for the Corinthians who must execute Paul's ritual curse upon the offender by driving him out of the church and into the province of Satan. The anticipated destruction of the sinner's body is an extreme form of what but remedial punishment that Paul expects will benefit his spirit. He speaks at this point in his first epistle to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 20. The hidden assumption here, my friends, is that earthly and physical life is a blessing from God cut short by the curse of biological death. Similar chastisements, by the way, befell other Christians who failed to discern Christ's presence in the Eucharist. Remember that passage that comes to us later in this very epistle, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 to 32, where Paul is very clear, if you do not discern what you receive in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, death will fall upon you. Death will fall upon you. My dear friends, Paul is not afraid to bring the rod, <laughs> as we've already touched upon, huh? How about verse 6? Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens all the dough? We have to remember that yeast is a proverbial symbol of evil and uh, corruptive influence. We see this in Matthew chapter 16 as well as Luke 12. Here, it symbolizes the incestuous man who must be removed from the church lest his sins have a damaging impact upon the whole batch of believers. Now, in verses 7 to 8, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be new dough, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is drawing upon a spiritual lesson from the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Here you have Paul exercising his theological muscle. Again, he is steeped in the Old Testament, and so he has the whole Old Testament at his fingertips, which includes the seven great ancient feast days. He knows about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and here he speaks to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just as every Jewish family cleansed its home of leaven before the feast, as Exodus chapter 12 verses 14 to 20 instructs, so Paul challenges the Corinthians to rid their church of sin and even flagrant sinners before their celebration of the liturgy. He mentions the paschal sacrifice of Christ because the day of preparation for the Passover when the lambs were slaughtered in the temple was also the day of the preparation for the festival of unleavened bread when all leaven in Israel was to be discarded. Rich, rich stuff. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock and we are out of time If you have any questions, comments, observations about anything we've been talking about here as we have been going through the first letter to the Corinthians, please don't hesitate to go to my email at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to joeholcraft.org, J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org, and just send your message on its way. And continue to send me your questions for Thursday. As I noted, what was it, last week or two weeks ago, the questions have been rolling in, but don't let that stop you. One of the things I'm present to is sometimes certain questions fit best within the continuity of what a lot of people might be thinking about because of what's going on in American popular culture, or for that matter, international popular culture. So whatever question you might have, please send me your questions, and uh, I will gladly receive those and respond to them. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, an evening from which we continue to reflect into the richness and the beauty of your inspired Word of God, in this case, Paul's letter to the Church of Corinth. And we just ask that you continue to bless each and every one of us, bless our families, all of the encounters we might have with our families, that they might be full of grace. As always, we pray these things through the intercession of Mother Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.